0: Here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to correct a problem that has plagued the church for years. It's the problem that surrounds the issue of doubt. Now actually doubt is not the problem. The problem is how the church often handles doubt. And believe it or not we normally address it with what I might call bumper sticker theology. And maybe you've even seen this little bumper sticker that says, The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. You ever seen that one? Now, that may sound really good to those of us who park in a pew on Sunday, but I'll tell you something, it really frustrates the heck uh, out of doubters. It frustrates them because they know Christians just like you and just like me who are struggling with some of the same doubts that they are. And so they wonder, why you seem to be so weird? See, honest doubters are looking for answers, but when they are confronted with the church saying, well, take it or leave it, well, they normally check out of the church and rarely, if ever, come back. Friends, I'm here this morning to tell you that every Christ-following church ought to be a safe place where people can be that they can register their doubts and talk about their doubts. In fact, every last one of you who considers yourself to be a Christ follower ought to be a safe place for people to come and express their doubts, and the two of you together can explore them and seek answers to them. I think Christian author Lee Strobel had it right when he said, really, there are only about three different kinds of people in church. One is the group that uh, they are struggling with doubt right now. Now, I don't know, I'm not going to make you raise your hand or anything, but some of you are struggling with doubt right now. You're in that first group. The second group are those those people who have no doubts right now, but they're going to struggle with doubts somewhere down the road. And then there's the third group. He said there are some people who have no doubts whatsoever, will never have any doubts because they are basically brain dead. Now, I don't know whether you like hearing that or not. Now, if you're serious about your faith, then there's going to come a time when you get unanswered questions to your circumstances. There are going to come times when the world, just plain simple, does not make any sense and you wonder where God is. There are going to come times when you maybe wonder why God no longer fits into that little man-made box that you parked him in when you leave church on a Sunday morning. I want you to know that doubt does not mean that you've lost your faith. It simply means that you're trying to figure out how your faith fits into this chaotic, sin-filled world that you and I live in. So instead of being afraid of doubting, why don't we just let God use our doubt as a means of making us stronger in our faith and drawing us closer to himself? A number of years ago, I remember reading a story about a lady who was watching a butterfly struggled getting out of a little cocoon, and she watched it. It kept struggling and struggling, and finally frustrated her so much that she went and she got a little itty bitty pair of scissors, and she decided to cut part of that cocoon away so that the butterfly would find it easier to get out. Well, sure enough, when she was done, the butterfly got out, stretched its wings, took a few flaps flew a few feet, and then crashed and burned and died. What she discovered way too late was that the struggle to get out of the cocoon is what strengthened those wings for the butterfly to fly. Without the struggle, that butterfly had no life at all. Now, I don't know whether you'll agree with me or not, but I sometimes think that God uses doubt in many of our lives like that cocoon. He either forces us or allows us to go through a struggle in life Not because he wants us to crash and burn, not because he wants us to fail, but because he wants us to build up some strength and spread out our wings and learn to fly. Now that may sound a little bit paradoxical, but I believe it's true. And the one place doubters ought to feel most welcome, most secure, and most comfortable is in the church. And I'm going to tell you why. There's one little Bible verse that I don't know, for some reason, in all the time that I've read my Bible over the years, that I somehow missed. It comes from the little book of Jude. And I, I, I'm sure that all of you read completely through your Bible, so that someday when you get to heaven and, and Haggai walks up to you and said, what do you think of my book? You don't go, what? <laughs> or as one of my friends said, Habakkuk, and you respond, gesundheit. <laughs> but in Jude, a very short little book, chapter 1, verse 22, It says very simply, be merciful to those who doubt. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Be merciful to those who doubt. In other words, don't kick me when I'm down. Help me up. Point me in the right direction. And that's what I want to do this morning is to help point you in the right direction and offer three practical biblical uh, steps to help you survive whatever bout with doubt you're going through or will go through. And the first suggestion I would make is that you just need to learn to acknowledge your doubts. Admit it, you've got doubts. I've got doubts. If you've grown up in the church, though, you've probably felt some pressure to ignore your doubts or pretend that they're not there or at least keep them hidden in kind of a secret place lest anybody think that you're less spiritual than they think you are. But friends, the longer you keep your doubts shoved down... Guess what? There's going to come a point in time when those things are going to come back and they're going to bite you. It's always going to be a weak spot in your faith, so you've got to deal with your doubts. See, raising questions and having some doubts is never the sign of a weak faith. It's the sign of a growing faith. I don't know if you knew this. I I was a little bit surprised when I first heard this. But did you know that there was a time in Billy Graham's life when he questioned the truthfulness of the Bible? Isn't that amazing? Billy Graham questioned the truthfulness of God's word. His faith, he said, was kind of shaken to the core, and he began to have some doubts about the veracity of God's word. What did he do? Well, very simply, he acknowledged the fact that he had doubts. And then he trusted God, and of course, the rest is history. You know, before we feel comfortable, though, about expressing or acknowledging our doubt. Maybe we should know a little bit about doubt itself. For example, I want you to know this morning that doubt is not the unpardonable sin. I mean, you're not going to lose your salvation just because you've got some unanswered question about the Bible or some unanswered question about creation or some unanswered question even about the resurrection. We've all got certain doubts in our lives. I mean, doubt is not the same as unbelief. Unbelief is some sort of a willful decision we make. It's a deliberate decision to stand against the truth. But I think for far too long, we've been taught that it's wrong or dangerous to doubt. But I want to tell you this morning that if doubt is handled properly, it can become a springboard to an even deeper and stronger faith than you've ever experienced. You know, I've thought about honest doubters. And I also know something about cynics. You know what a cynic is. It's kind of a hard-boiled people look like they were baptized in vinegar you know honest doubters look for answers cynics ask questions but they're not looking for answers they just want to get into an argument with somebody else i mean honest doubters are never satisfied with their current level of belief but cynics actually revel in their unbelief honest doubters will investigate to find the answer but cynics will never do that because their mind is all made up Friends, understand this. God welcomes honest doubt, but he stands against the cynic. Now, have you ever wondered what causes people to doubt? You know, there are a lot of reasons. Let me just give you three of them really quick. One of them is an intellectual reason for doubt. And this is one I struggled with at one time. I grew up in Seward, Nebraska. You can't get any more Lutheran than that, I guess, unless you're born in St. Louis. But I grew up in Seward, Nebraska, where I went to St. John's Lutheran Grade School and then walked across the street to go go to Concordia Lutheran High School, which was on the campus of Concordia Teachers College, now known as Concordia University. I had been forced, I'll use that word, to memorize Luther's small catechism, questions and answers, forward and backwards in grade school. I had to go through confirmation two weeks in a row, being grilled by elders dressed in black suits with equally black faces. I went to a high school where I was taught all of these doctrines, and in college I actually majored not only in theology and education, by the way, minored in physical education and political science, but I was taught what to believe. But then when I went to get my first master's degree, I went to Illinois State University in Normal, and suddenly I began to hear some things that were opposite of things that I had been taught. One only needs to spend all that time in a Lutheran school and hear about creation in six days and the world being about 6,000 some years old and end up in a biology class in college or university to hear that we kind of swam out of a swamp someplace and that the world was millions upon billions of years and I began to wonder about that and a little bit of doubt came back in. There's another reason we sometimes doubt. It has to do with our emotions. And by that, I just say, if you base your entire faith on some sort of a, 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 a feeling, you're in for a bumpy ride. And I think all of us have been at places like we've been on some wonderful retreat like the men are. We hope that they're having an absolutely wonderful spiritual time, that it is an amazing spiritual high. And sometimes we like to go from one high to another high to another high. We want a worship service where every time it is just blown out of the water. It's just a wonderful experience. It's kind of coast out of here. That's what we want. But when I was ordained, I asked my son to write a song for my ordination. And he wrote an interesting song. And there's a line in there that says, Enjoy the mountaintops, but remember that the work is done in the valleys. If all you're going to do is look for feelings, friends, when those feelings disappear and they finally droop, so will your faith and doubt will creep in. Now, it can also come as a result of a willful decision. You know, it's those times in life when you know very clearly what God has told you what to do or not to do, and you think about it for a moment, you think, "Ah, what the heck, I bet I can get away with it this time. I've been there too. I used to sin real fast so I could sneak it past God doesn't work let's go back to thomas you probably wonder if i was ever going to get to thomas well look at thomas's decision in verse 25 the other disciples had told him we have seen the lord but thomas makes a willful decision he says i will not believe unless what i see and i touch so what Thomas is doing is acknowledging his doubt. He says, you guys may believe it, but I don't. And I, in fact, I won't even believe it until I get some pretty clear answers to my questions. So that's the very first step. Just acknowledge, admit that you've got some doubts. Here's the second, second thing you want to do. Turn to God for help. I mean, I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. But what do we do sometimes we we say well I can handle this myself I hate to tell you how many times I've said well you know I got three master's degrees in the doctorate I probably know something I ought to be able to handle this myself and I've ended up in deep weeds because I failed to turn to God now let me ask you this question when you hear the word doubt what's the first name that comes to mind you can you can talk It'll be okay Thomas, right? Thomas. But you know, he's not the only one in the Bible. Have you ever heard the story of doubting Sarah? Remember, God said you're going to have a baby in her old age, and she said, oh, how can I have a baby when I'm an old woman? She doubted God. Have you ever read the story about doubting Moses? When God says, I want you to go and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he said, oh, God, I don't think you want me. I'm not the right guy for the job. In fact, you ought to choose somebody else. Or or what about the story of doubting Gideon? You ever read that one? I mean, Gideon, who was promised that he would lead uh, Israel out of Midianite control, and he actually demanded a sign to prove that this was going to happen. And when God gave him a sign, what did he do? He asked for another sign to confirm the first sign. Or what about Jeremiah, who was told to give a word of God to some other king? What did he say? Oh, oh, come on, God, I'm just a young boy. Oh, let's move into the New Testament. How about John the Doubting Baptist? You heard that story, haven't you? I mean, John, who saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus, heard a voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. And yet when he gets tossed in the prison, what does he do? He sends word to Jesus and says, Are you really the Messiah or should we look for somebody else? One of my favorites, you can read the whole story in Mark chapter 9. It's a man who's got a demon-possessed son. He brings him to Jesus. He explains the situation. And then he says to Jesus, Do something if you can. Wouldn't you like to have video of some of these Bible stories? I would. I almost pictured Jesus with a smile on his face and said, if? (laughs) If I can do something? And then Jesus actually said, anything is possible for someone who believes. And then comes one of the most astounding statements in the Bible. This guy says, Lord, I believe but what? Help my unbelief. Now, I love that statement. Isn't that the way you feel often? I really do believe God. But, oh, man, help my doubt. Help my unbelief. And that's the kind of response that God is literally looking for in the life of a doubter. You you may have some unresolved doubts today. God said, that's fine. Tell me about it. Let's deal with it. Well, what about Thomas? How did he handle his doubt? Well, verse 24 says we're, we're told that when Jesus first appeared to the disciples, he wasn't there. Now the question is, why wasn't he? Well, come to Bible class and I'll tell you. Well, I'll actually tell you, I really don't know. It could be that he was afraid to be together with the disciples and be arrested and crucified like Jesus. It could be that he was just bummed out that Jesus was dead. At least that's what he thought. But regardless, he missed the first appearance of Jesus and it resulted in doubt. But here's the exciting part of the story. I thought about this last night. Do you realize how exciting the Bible is? This is one cool book. He acknowledged his doubts and he was ready to get some help. And in verse 26, it says, Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was right there, still struggling with his doubts, but at least he was willing to put himself in a position where these doubts could be dispelled. Now, let me ask you what was that position he found himself in? It was within a community of believers. Now, I love that image. Thomas didn't cut and run just because he had doubts. Neither did the other disciples condemn him or pick on him or, or you know, call him names. And, but instead of fear and judgment, this community of believers became a place where doubts could be confronted and handled. And that is an absolutely wonderful picture of what the church ought to be like. So you're going to acknowledge your doubts and you're going to turn to God for help. But then third, you're going to receive what it is that God offers you. Now, what did Thomas need at this point in his life, in his spiritual life? Well, I'll tell you, he needed some comfort. He needed some proof. He needed some reassurance. Now, I want you to put yourself in his place for a moment, if you can. Put yourself in Thomas's sandals. Everybody else believed that Jesus had come back from the dead. But you still doubt. You want to believe, but you can't. Why? It's because of those nagging little doubts. If you read the book of James, it says a person like that is like a double-minded person. It's like a wind, a wave that's tossed back and forth by the wind. And you have this kind of feeling of chaos and turmoil. And if some of you are in the midst of some sort of a doubt right now, you know exactly what that's like. And what you need is exactly what Jesus gave to Thomas. Verse 26. Peace be with you. Just that simple. Peace be with you. When everything else in your life is filled with chaos, Jesus comes and offers us peace. If you read the rest of your scriptures, it's not peace like the world gives. It's that peace that passes all human understanding. And you know what I like best about those words, that Jesus comes and says, peace be with you? What I like best is what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, oh, come on, Thomas, I can't believe you doubted me. He also didn't say, Thomas, you really hurt me. I mean, that hurts. You didn't, you didn't believe the other disciples? Come on, Thomas. Didn't say that. Didn't shame him. Didn't judge him. Didn't condemn him. He simply gave him what he needed, Peace. That's what he needed on the inside, peace. But he also needed something on the outside, didn't he? He needed some visible proof. And that's why Jesus says, here, put your finger here. Touch me. Touch me where the nails went through. And put your hand where they shoved that spear through my side where that blood and water ran out. And by the way, it's interesting That's it's blood and water, right? The blood for the sacrifice and the water because Jesus was the river or water of life. And when Thomas does that, he utters one of the most profound faith cries that you'll ever hear. He says, my Lord and my God. And it was at that time he was totally and radically changed forever. Now, tradition says he actually headed off to India, where he found other people who not only doubted but totally disbelieved in Jesus and what Jesus had done. I mean, Thomas knew what it was like to have great doubts and to deal with them. And so it it was now his call to go and share that with other people. And friends, Jesus wants to do the same thing for you today. He wants to come behind the closed doors of your life and say, peace be to you. See how I died for you. And then he's going to call you to live for him a life fuller and more abundant and more prosperous and more useful than you ever thought. He wants to take you past the doubts in your life that hold you back from serving Him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. He's calling you to something a whole lot bigger than yourself. See, the risen Jesus literally stands each and every Sunday. He stands each and every day in your life, and He's calling you to a life of following Him. And if you don't live a life, of purpose and passion and meaning and fulfillment, then I would suggest to you that maybe you have not yet quite found the Jesus who died for you. Let me ask you some questions kind of in closing. What would it take for you to trust Jesus in faith in every last single area of your life? Financial, emotional, spiritual, relational, marital, and the rest. I can guarantee you there are many of us that hold places back. If Jesus came to our house, there would be one door at least that we wouldn't want to open for him. Kind of like the places you have in your house already when company comes. What would it take for you to believe that you really, really matter to God? What would it take for you to believe that if people do not find Jesus on this earth, the only thing they have to face is hell? What would it take for you to believe that God made you to be included in his process to prevent people from going to hell? What would it take for you to believe that a church is not a place just of do's and don'ts, but it's a place to build relationships with one another, and more importantly, a relationship with Jesus Christ, so that you can go out and build a relationship between you and others that Jesus can walk over? I mean, what would it take you... To believe that Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he also loves you so much that he's not going to let you stay that way? What would it take for you to believe that he wants to take you further in your disciple walk than you've ever been before? What would it take for you to believe that there's more for you than just coming and plopping in a pew week after week and wondering what it's all about? What would it take for you to believe that you're more like a doubting Thomas than you are a believing Thomas? I've read these questions to myself for almost two weeks in preparing this message, friends. i struggle with them. I wondered a few times, what would it really take? Today I'm calling all of us to a deeper walk of faith. I'm calling all of us to take this gigantic step of faith, to trust the word on all levels, to take Jesus at his word. I tell so many people when I teach in prison or when I go elsewhere, work the word, and the word will work you. See, Jesus, every time you come to him face to face, is calling you to fall in love with him. And he's calling you to do all you can, as long as you can, to help other people fall in love with him. You know, one of the strangest comments I ever get when I preach somewhere, they say, man, you preach like you actually believe that. <laughs> Isn't that strange? People would say, you preach like you actually believe this? Well, I didn't, if I didn't believe this, I'd be home sleeping. Jesus is calling all of us, you and me, to live and to help other people find life also. So I guess I have to ask, are you alive? Do you have that kind of life? Do you you need that kind of life? Do you want that kind of life, a joy-filled life, knowing Jesus loves you and you share that with other people? You know, today I'm just calling all of us again, just kind of step out of our little doubt box and embraced by faith that Jesus, the life that Jesus has given to those who know him well. So will you trust and believe and also trust him to help your unbelief? Our text ends with these words. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. May God bless our pursuit of this